Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're discussing the philosophy of Kriya Yoga and what it's like to live as a Kriya Yogi. My guest is Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour. She's a spiritual teacher, writer, poet, and also the spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a Kriya Yoga Meditation Center with headquarters in San Jose, California. Yogacharya O'Brien teaches nationally and internationally and has received several community service awards, including the Mahatma Gandhi Award for the Promotion of Religious Pluralism. Her websites are ellengraceobrien.com, and O'Brien is B-R-I-A-N, ellengraceobrien.com, and csecenter.org. You can also follow her on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Yogacharya O'Brien. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya O'Brien. I'm really delighted to have you join me again on the show. Thank you, Dr. Trujillo. It's a joy to be here as always, and I look forward to our topic this morning, consciously living um, our spiritual awareness in the world. You know, that's what we do as Kriya Yogis. And it's a special day today that we're recording on March 9th. It is uh, the anniversary of the birth of my guru, Roy Eugene Davis, and the anniversary of the Mahasamadhi, conscious exit of the body of Swami Sri Yukteswar, you know, the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda. So, um, it's a very special day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before <clears throat> before we begin our dialogue about living as a Kriya Yogi, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of contemplation. Oh. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our bodies just feeling our bodies in space. Whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our bodies and paying particular attention to whatever surfaces are supporting our weight. Feeling that connection, that support from a surface that your body's weight rests upon. And then turning your attention to the breath, just noticing as you take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. Noticing on the next inhale, the cool air in the nostrils. And noticing the difference, the warmth of the air as you breathe out. And just staying with your breath, continuing to Notice each inhale and each exhale. Here's something to contemplate from Paramahansa Yogananda's book, The Divine Romance. 
Yoga is the art of doing everything with the consciousness of God. Not only when you are meditating, but also when you are working, your thoughts should be constantly anchored in God. If you work with the consciousness that you are doing it to please God, that activity unites you with God. Therefore, do not imagine that you can find God only in meditation. Both meditation and right activity are essential, as the Bhagavad Gita teaches. If you think of God while you perform your duties in this world, you will be mentally united with God. Once again, Yogacharya Brian, it's delightful to have you join me as a guest here on the show and talk about what it's like to live as a Kriya Yogi. In preparing for this conversation, as I was reflecting back on this question, I remembered that during my very first retreat with you, which was in 2002, you gave a quote from the Bhagavad Gita for contemplation during the retreat that I still remember and which struck me as resonant to this topic that we're talking about today. Let's start with the Bhagavad Gita for listeners who are unfamiliar with it. Would you give us an overview of what the Bhagavad Gita is and where it came from? That was a beautiful quote from Paramahansaji. Thank you for that. For that meditation really went to the heart of spiritually conscious living, um, experiencing the truth of our being in meditation and living it in the world. And I'm sure we're going to get around to that. Um, I wanted to share with you the first copy of my teacher's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita that I studied with and um, because here's the cover that has you know kind of worn off and in this particular one light on the spiritual path it was a series that he was doing on scriptures and so in this little volume he um, covered Bhagavad Gita but you know for me everything is underlined in there (laughs) <laughs> and, um, and I thought when I looked at this, I thought, oh, this is like the Velveteen Rabbit. You know, it's just completely all the fur is loved off. That's and, right. Um, so this was was my, you know, introduction in depth to the Bhagavad Gita, which is, um, of course, a, a classic scripture um, from the Vedic canon. You know, it is uh, considered by Hindus to be their Bible, but it is. Um, a treasure, you know, of inspiration and uh, spiritual guidance and and practical help for, you know, millions of people all over the world, regardless of what their um, spiritual uh, background or religion. And um, because it has insight into the nature of reality and how to live um, as a spiritual being in the world. Um, In terms of how it's situated in the Vedic canon, you know, it is, of course, it draws its wisdom from the Vedas, but it is is a portion of the Mahabharata, one of the epics. and, you know, the Mahabharata is an extensive epic um, about uh, 
war, you know, ostensibly between the forces of uh, ignorance and uh, enlightenment, really right action. And the Gita is, you know, right in the middle of that epic. So it's just kind of can be pulled out um, as a comprehensive teaching. And I don't know, I don't think there's really anything that you can't find in the Gita in terms of spiritual insight and guidance. And um, part of its, um, let's say, charm and utility is that it's accessible to people who are just beginning their spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. But it is a lifelong companion and inspiration for those of us who are on the path for many years, you, you can go back to it again and again. And, um, you know, as your consciousness changes, you find something new. There's a, a story about Swami Yukteswar, who was, of course, a great scholar, um, talking about the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, whether he knew the Gita or not. And he said, you know, something like, no, you know, I've only just begun. And, wow. you know, that is the, that is the nature of the depth of the depth and the breadth of the teaching in this uh, classic uh, spiritual work, which is only 18 chapters, you know, it's not um, as long as its mothership, the Mahabharata, right. um, but it is, um, it's been a lifelong companion for me. And, you know, those who study the Gita know that it was, uh, the companion of Mahatma Gandhi, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a spiritually based, um, political activist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I did also want to mention the two main characters because I'm going to give a quote, this quote from the retreat that I remember, you know, 20 years later um, is from Arjuna and it's a question for Krishna. So did you just want to mention briefly who those people are? Well, you know, in one thing about the Gita, you know, due to its accessibility is that there's also a range of how people see it and how they interpret it and um, whether they see it, you know, literally, you know, there was this war and there was these warriors and, um, you know, Arjuna is a warrior, Lord Krishna is his advisor. Um, and then those who are interpreting it metaphysically as Arjuna representing the seeking soul and Lord Krishna you know, the divine self. So um, in our tradition, you know, it's seen as an inner dialogue between that, um, you know, the soul of us that is seeking to find its freedom and the higher self established in that freedom that is guiding the seeking soul. Mm -hmm. I did want to mention for listeners that you're currently offering teachings on the Bhagavad Gita on every Wednesday morning at 7.30, and you're exploring some of the key themes. As you mentioned, the Gita has so much in it, but themes include how to experience inner peace, enhance our power of discernment, realize true happiness, and fulfill our destiny. Listeners can sign on to those live if that works for the time frame of where you are, but they are also available 
on your other podcast, Kriya Yoga Today, which listeners can access wherever they get their podcasts. So with that little little encouragement for Gita study and a little bit more background of why that might be beneficial, let's continue on with this quote that I mentioned, which is from the Bhagavad Gita chapter 2, verse 54. In Paramahansa Yogananda's translation, he describes it as this, or he translated it as this. Arjuna said, O Krishna, what are the characteristics of the sage who possesses ever calm wisdom and who is steeped in samadhi or ecstasy? How does this man of steady wisdom speak and sit and walk? Just going to read it again. Arjuna said, O Krishna, what are the characteristics of the sage who possesses ever calm wisdom? and who is steeped in samadhi, or ecstasy. How does this man of steady wisdom speak and sit and walk? Obviously, this quote was meaningful for me, since I still remember the specific the specifics of it, even after 20 years <laughs> have passed. Why is this, this question, this question about what does this look like? Why is it important for this question to arise in us as it did in Arjuna? <clears throat> There's so many things to say about this passage and I'm glad we're going to be addressing it. And I'm glad that it came up in your mind, you know, out of our deep connection, you know, when I was <laughs> teaching on it and then, you know, it also came into your field of awareness. So that's a beautiful, beautiful thing um, to experience. Um, first, I want to say, I just kind of want to back up and say that, you know, um, you know, today we also have some, you know, gender neutral, um, translations of the Gita you know one of the things that I found difficult early on in the path is that you know the translations of scriptures are so frequently about a man and he and so I had to go through all my scripture books and you know add the s for she you know which I did which was part of you know why things got loved into being because I had to you know, even though what we're speaking about, the soul, the essence is beyond gender, <clears throat> it's often difficult for women to find their way into scriptures that, you know, what is the description of a man? You know, so, you know, we can say, what is the description, you know, of a person? How does this person of steady wisdom um, speak and sit and walk? So I just, I want to start there. And, um, <sighs> You know, this is this question is considered also a turning point uh, in the Gita, um, and there are many, of course, and there are many questions that Arjuna asks. And it, you know, if you're a student of the Gita, it's delightful just to go through and see. Well, what are the questions that are asked? And very frequently, there are questions. You know, um, you know, early on, he's asking how how can this possibly work? You know, how can I possibly succeed? Right. Uh, in in my dharma you know how is this going to be possible mm -hmm. and so in the beginning you know he's filled with these doubts and you know sort of push back with lord krishna and you know the gita starts off then with his despair and his questioning and 
Krishna rolls out, you know, the highest teaching of truth or um, absolute reality. He gives them this primer in jnana yoga, wisdom yoga. And then um, he shows him, you know, how to actualize that in the world, you know, through this vehicle of karma yoga that has to do, you know, sometimes people think of karma yoga as service, you know, they say, I'm a karma yogi, so I serve, um, which is only partially true, you know, as karma yoga is really for the purpose of purifying the mental field, and in particular, the buddhi, the faculty of discrimination, so that you know, one is able to live this wisdom. This is part of the question. So this is one is able to live this wisdom because they're able to be guided by the soul. You know, Paramahansa Yogananda talked about this as a definition of liberation, you know, where one is free to live in the world guided by the soul, guided by the higher true self, rather than being guided by reaction to external circumstances or reactions to the patterns in our own mind. So Krishna gives Arjuna <clears throat> teachings about ultimate reality, how to live them through this practice of karma yoga or buddhi yoga, as it's referred to in the Gita. Mm. And then in this question, we can see that Arjuna is trying it on. That's, you know, for me, you know, that's the, um, the beauty of this question. You know, it's kind of like anything in life when you're, you're beginning to move towards it, you know, and like, well, how would it, you know, how would it look for me to be married? You know, how, how would it look for me to have this job? How would it look for me, you know, to move to San Diego, right? You know, we, we begin, we begin to, we begin to try it on. And that's part of what I sense with this practice. You know, he's not so much asking, you know, what does it look like, you know, when, a, a sage walks and talks and you know there is that but he's he's asking I think what would it look like for me you know what is it going to change in my life mm. you know how will I be different you know will I you know if we look at it in our own lives in the mundane level you know we say well will I still be able to do the work that I'm doing you know, as I wake up spiritually, am I still going to have the life that I have? Right. And, you know, Lord Krishna has already cleared up that question about work. Arjuna's a warrior. He said, you know, do it, but learn to do it skillfully. So that question's cleared up. But we have other questions, you know, am I going to be interested in the same things? Am I going to look the same? Will people still like me? Will I still have the same friends? You know, <laughs> are my friends going to fall away? So the, this is a common Thing, but it represents this turn of coming onto the path, seeing it as possible for ourselves. And in our tradition of Kriya Yoga, that's what is taught, um, that it is possible for every person you know, to awaken because that's their divine destiny. And that is the message of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, the song of God. That's what it means. Mm, beautiful. In this question, Arjuna is asking about a sage, about an enlightened person, someone who is, um, is 
steeped in samadhi, steeped in ecstasy. So how does this quote relate to Kriya Yoga? Well, if we look at the definition of Kriya Yoga, you know, that we find in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, you know, Kriya Yoga, this uh, discipline, uh, spiritual discipline is said is practiced, you know, in order to accomplish samadhi, conscious union with our essence of being. That's that's the purpose and to remove, you know, the obstacles to um, to samadhi. And and in that verse um, in, in the Yoga Sutra and also this verse in the Bhagavad Gita, it's helpful to understand that the reference is to two types of samadhi. You know, one, as it refers to here, is this, well, what does it look like when a person is in ecstasy, you know, in the highest samadhi, which would be called, you know, nirvikalpa samadhi, which is the ultimate experience of samadhi where, you know, the scriptures say one does not return um, to a lower state of consciousness. You know, sometimes people think, well, a person doesn't return to the world, but that's not true. They don't return to worldly consciousness. You know, we experience before that, you know, insights into the nature of reality, insights into the essence, our essence of being. But then, you know, due to patterns in the mind, uh, we fall into forgetfulness and we, you know, act out of those patterns instead of being free to live in the soul, as I mentioned earlier. But here, you know, it's referring to a person who has experienced that highest state of samadhi. And then how does that person live that samadhi in a practical way? You know, how do they sit? How do they walk? How do they talk? So um, that's important, I think, to understand about this verse. Yes. When I think about the question, so Arjuna begins... And he asks about the sage who possesses ever calm wisdom and who is steeped in samadhi. And he has to, of course, as you were mentioning, he's trying this on. And he has to imagine something about what that person would be like. And out of all of the possible descriptors that he could choose for this person, he mentions someone who is wise and someone who is calm. So I thought I would ask you about that. Why do you think wisdom made this list was the first thing. Why do you think wisdom is an important attribute for those on the spiritual path? Well, it's really a descriptor, isn't it, of the teachings so far in this chapter. So, um, you know, the first part of Gyana Yoga, Wisdom Yoga, has been, you know, the teachings about the nature of ultimate reality and the truth of what we are. So that person is wise, they know that. And then they're also calm, which is the teaching connected to karma yoga or buddhi yoga. So that person is established in equanimity, which is covered, you know, just before this part in chapter two, so that is that combination of self-knowing, self-awareness, and um, being able to um, have even-mindedness uh, in engaging in the world. And there's, you know, the whole teaching about how to do that. Um, that is, there's some of that before, and then, you know, more of it to come as he, as Lord Krishna describes, you know, what that 
what that person is like. And some of it gets covered, you know, as we dive into, you know, what does that look like? But those two elements are the fundamental aspects of jnana yoga and karma yoga, or what is referred to as buddha yoga, that's just been introduced in this chapter. So as we think about this from the Kriya Yoga perspective, because we're talking about what would it look like for to live in the world as a Kriya Yogi, what are some of the other characteristics that you might want to add to wisdom and calmness? Well, my guru, uh, Rai Jean Davis, the um, disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda, often defined Kriya Yoga as intentional living. And so we know who we are and we know our purpose for being here, you know, to um, be awake and to serve. And um, you know, we also have in the Gita, of course, the very first part where Arjuna is being reminded of his dharma and how it's going to be possible, you know, to fulfill his purpose, you know, in this lifetime, his purpose to awaken spiritually and his purpose to do what he's here to do according to his svadharma, his individual destiny. So I think it's um, important, you know, from that um, perspective. Mm-hmm. I did want to touch on one of the taglines that we've always had for the yoga hour, which I think now we're in our 13th year of this podcast, is that we discuss yoga as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. This describes someone who is spiritually conscious, as you were just saying, awake, as well as being fulfilled. Would you Would you say more about that? Well, being spiritually awake is the key to being fulfilled. <laughs> you know, um, and it's also the the key to karma yoga, uh, to acting in the world in a spiritually conscious way, because um, it's about being anchored, you know, in our own wholeness. Um, that that keeps the mind calm. You know, otherwise, you know, we are using the old uh, ego-based, ego-driven operating system, as I like to call it, you know, which is, um, you know, ego as a function of the mind um, is um, the sense of I as a separate entity, which is why it's called the false self, because it that's that's not true, but it allows for certain interaction in the world. And um, so this is the way of purification of that, you know, to be, and there's a verse that comes, you know, after this one we're discussing about a sage is one who is um, satisfied in the self by the self. In other words, one who knows their own wholeness is is in a totally different operating system, is not in the world according to selfish 
purpose, you know, trying to get, trying to acquire, you know, trying to be, because that person knows uh, who they are. And that way they can flow, you know, with a higher purpose without uh, grasping, um, which is, you know, um, the function of the ego self. So that becomes transformed, you know, in the spiritual life. As a reminder to our listeners, today on the Yoga Hour, our guest is Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, founder and spiritual director of the podcast. You can find out more about her and her programs on her website, ellengraceobrien.com or at csecenter.org. We will have these links on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So returning to the quote, Arjuna specifically asks about three things, how a sage speaks and sits and walks. So let's take those one by one. Why is it important to know about speech and what it would look like as a Kriya Yogi? Well, one of the things I think to think about, to contemplate about this verse is, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Arjun is thinking about how would it be for me, but there's also this element where the deeper question is, how does the transformation of consciousness, how does the change in outlook or the change in the operating system, as I'm talking about, you know, from ego to divine self, how does that show up? And, you know, we know that um, the state of mind, our own state of mind is revealed, you know, in the face, <laughs> um, in the body, in what we say, you know, and how we engage with the world or how we withdraw from the world. Um, you know, and sometimes we don't, even know, you know, maybe at an unconscious level, you know, what we're feeling or what we're thinking. And then something comes out of our mouth and we go, oh, you know, you know, <laughs> let me reel that back in. Um, so the question is really, you know, how does this state of consciousness, how, how, what does it look like? How is it revealed? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can just start by being aware that we know that our own state of consciousness, you know, we feel it, others see it. Sometimes others know more about it than we do just by observing us, you know, just like we know about others, like how their state of mind is revealed in their face and in their bodies and how they speak and sit and act. So that's fundamental. And it's really important isn't it you know we think the mind is such a private thing like a separate private thing but it's not and so you know this is one of the reasons why you know waking up is so important you know in our everyday relationships you know to have harmony in the family but to live in an awakened world also which is one of the goals you know of yoga so um so we want to think about um, what does speech look like? And, you know, fundamentally it is how does our speech reflect our consciousness? And in the ideal state, you know, how does our speech reflect awakening? 
And um, when I was speaking about this at Gita study, you know, which is which is on the podcast, one of the places I, I went for this was the blessing that I had, you know, of 40 years, you know, with my guru to observe this, you know, what was he like? You know, what was his speech like? You know, how did he sit? How did he walk? So with regard to his speech, his speech was always uplifting. You know, he, he, if he talked about people, he would talk about the truth of what they are. Um, his outlook of faith and, um, you know, faith in God, faith in the gurus, faith in the um, awakening trend of consciousness in the world was always there. So he, he always, you know, referred to that and he, just being with him and listening to what he had to say would up, uplift you. So he, you know, he didn't, um, he didn't engage in um, gossip or criticism or um, he, he never talked about problems. And, you know, I said, well, sometimes, you know, if I wanted to talk about problems with him, he, he would, he would listen and then he might make some comment and then he would change the subject. Mm. because he his speech he was committed you know to seeing through all those changing conditions to you know what was real and what was going to be lasting and and what was important so his speech was very intentional and you can see that in his writings you know he he was very succinct about the words that he would choose you know he often defined them so that people would have a clear understanding you know he didn't use slang and because he wanted to be clear he didn't want us to use it he um like i said you know he didn't um he he didn't criticize, he didn't, also he didn't praise or blame. And, you know, as a disciple, you know, you always kind of want some praise, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but he didn't, he didn't dish that out. And, you know, I knew also that that was a teaching, you know, that he was, he would not use his speech to manipulate others. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very, very powerful to observe his speech and how his dharma, you know, as a disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda was reflected in how he spoke, what he chose to say and what he did not, where he did not go with his speech. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't talk about politics or mundane things, you know, and yet, you know, it it was possible to be with him for an extended period of time, you know, maybe an hour where he would just be talking about, you know, his guru, about the masters, about yoga, about the trends of awakening in our world. So that's what he talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What a great, what a great example. Mm -hmm. As I was thinking about this and this preparation and thinking about speech, I was reminded of two of the yamas or restraints, which are the ethical principles that are set forth as the first limb of yoga in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. So the first two principles are harmlessness and truthfulness. And I thought I would ask you about that. So how is the practice of harmlessness important when we speak? Well, these 
restraints, you know, where we begin, you know, walking the path of yoga, when we think about what it means, you know, restraint, what are we restraining? You know, we're restraining the ego drive. The, it, we're, we're beginning to make a change in that ego-driven operating system, which is selfish. And so it, it might want to, you know, bring others down, you know, <laughs> Paramahansa Yogananda once said, some people like to become tall by cutting off the heads of others. Mm. Okay. And so um, we, we restrain the, the ego drive, you know, whether it is through, you know, having, you know, speech that is uplifting and is not harmful to others or, you know, speech that is truthful, you know, connected to being, being harmless. It's like when I was describing my teacher, his, the trajectory of his teaching and his speech was always towards the highest truth. And um, so I think the thing to understand really about the restraints is that it starts there and it's really about restraining um, that push of the ego to lift itself up, you know, put others down, find its way in the world. It's all, all of that is about that operating system of separate self that needs to um, define itself. And so sometimes, you know, you know, next of course is the neom is the practices where we go, you know, for um, our meditation practice but to try to meditate and have a steady spiritual practice without attending to restraining um, the selfish drives of the ego, it, it, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so the system is ingenious, you know, in that way. Mm-hmm. In particular, I think that, um, sometimes it's easier to see the harmfulness of, of an actual action. And we sort of forget about the potential for harmlessness or for harm that comes from speech. As we put something out there, I was trying to remember the quote, you know, but it's something about, you know, once, once something is said, it it spreads with the wind, you know, to everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did think it was actually an interesting point that, when he, when he, when Arjuna is trying to imagine this speech is the first thing he asks about what, you know, how, what does that look like? How do they speak? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's, um, in a sense, it's subtle, you know, related to thought, but all of them, as I mentioned, really connect to what is the state of consciousness that is revealed in the words that are spoken. So it's not only the state of consciousness, but what is the intention behind those behind those words mm-hmm. where is it coming from and for what purpose and you know as we begin to study our our speech you know and many of us think oh you know I, I can see why it would be useful to just be silent right right <laughs> indeed I had mentioned that the other thought that I had about the yamas first was harmlessness and speech, but the other was truthfulness. Because sometimes people can perhaps take this too much to heart. Oh, I was just being truthful. 
but without realizing that in their truthfulness, there was also harm that was embedded there. There's potentially sometimes when um, when truthfulness can um, be counteracted if you're also trying to be trying to not do harm. Did you want to comment on that? Well, the path of Kriya Yoga is a path of awakening, clear discernment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as we study truthfulness, we understand that there's relative truth, there's absolute truth. So, you know, whatever we can put into words is a relative truth. And, you know, so we begin to see that and um, discern, you know, what is useful to say and, and what is not. Right. Really good point. Um, so after this discussion, listeners can probably understand why when Arjuna asks specifically how a sage would speak, okay, that that totally makes sense, you know, because speech has this big impact. It reflects our consciousness. It, it We're putting into, into practice harmlessness and truthfulness. So it just totally makes sense to me that 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 this was one of the things he would ask about but the next thing he asked about is how a sage would sit <laughs> which which was not as it's not as as immediately obvious why would that be on his list it's a very short list mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, but speech i get so sitting what what uh, what what would you say about that well i think um it's not it, it's not the um, top layer of, you know, obviousness, like what does it look like when a person sits down? We know what it looks like when a person sits down. And, you know, we also are aware of what it looks like when someone is sitting in meditation. But the commentators offer that how does a sage sit has to do with how does a sage of wisdom withdraw from the world, which mm-hmm. is indicated by sitting and so, you know, if we, if we delve into that, you know, it's like, how do we engage in activity and rest? So those, those two questions at the end are about how does a person withdraw from the world, you know, through regular meditation practice or, you know, through, you know, in a sense, non-engagement, and then, you know, how are they active in the world? So again, you know, when I, I looked at my guru and the way that he taught us uh, Kriya Yoga. He taught us so much by example. And, you know, one of the things that he stressed, he stressed and he stressed and he stressed and he lived was the importance of having a regular routine. Because, you know, the goal of yoga is to quiet the restless mind. Mm. And, you know, if we're going here and there and we don't rest, you know, we don't care for the body mind. Um, you know, we can't have that clarity and a steady meditation practice. So, like, how does it sit? Is about having steady meditation practice, but it's also about um, not being continually engaged in the world. So, you know, and I watched my guru. He had a regular time. You know, when he showed up at the retreat center early, early in the morning, you know, before dawn, um, to meditate and to write and to have his quiet time, much as Paramahansa Yogananda did, and his time for correspondence, meeting with students, and then he had regular meals, 
and he had a regular work day. He, you know, seeing he would leave the retreat center, depending, you know, if re retreats were going on. But even then, he would leave about 3.30 in the afternoon and go home. He would exercise. He liked to swim and, um, you know, probably fix some dinner. Maybe, you know, have a relaxing evening. Maybe watch a little uplifting television and go to bed early. But he, he it, it was about the regularity that suited his schedule. So when we look at how does a person sit, we can ask ourselves, you know, how do I allow for rest, um, you know, disengaging from the world for periods of time throughout my day? And how do I have that balance in my life between, you know, sitting still, sitting still in meditation, sitting still in terms of non-engagement, um, yeah. How is that balance between that and activity, between rest and engagement? Mm -hmm. And which brings us to the last bit, which is we've talked about how does how does this person speak? How do they sit? And then how do they walk? So did you want to say anything further about that engagement, about that activity? Yes. <laughs> Um, you know, how a person holds themselves, you know, is one of the values of Hatha yoga practice mm -hmm. is this awareness of the body um, and awareness of the body is the holy temple of God. And, you know, is the person upright? You know, do they have steadiness in their being? Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, in all the years of my girl, and I'm sure, you know, probably happened somewhere, but it, it didn't happen with me. I never saw him hurry. Mm. And his moving through time and space. And I, you know, I had the privilege from time to time of traveling with him. And you know what it's like to travel. So it's kind of like, okay, where's my suitcase? But he kept things very clear and very simple. And he just seemed to me to kind of float through the world um, but moving through time and space with grace and ease that was anchored in that consciousness of being in the reality of God and the truth of his own being and that's the way to move through the world um, as Yogananda said you know you're you're in God and seeing it all as God and the way that you act in the world, the way that you move through the world reflects that. So it's there's there's freedom from hurry and freedom from worry. Wouldn't we all like that? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you touched on this a little bit when we were talking about how does how does a sage sit about meditation. And since I feel like this is the most important practice for Kriya Yoga, I wanted to, to stress this again. We are encouraged in, in the Yoga Sutras, we are encouraged in the Bhagavad Gita to have a steady meditation practice. So how does having a steady meditation practice help us to live as Kriya Yogis? You know, it grounds us, doesn't it? And it, and it is, um, you know, it's what I was just referring to as having that balance between activity and rest, rest and motion, 
my guru would tell this story about Paramahansa Yogananda that he, you know, he would spend hours in his room in the morning, you know, at the ashram and uh, before he would engage, you know, before activity, he would be in his room chanting, sometimes meditating, who knows, sometimes writing. Um, and a devotee asked him, you know, well, master, you know, you're, you're awakened, <laughs> you know, why do you need to spend these hours, you know, uh, in meditation? And he said, um, how can I help others, in, you know, without that, without having something to give? And so even for somebody who is fully awake, it is a way of, you know, deeply anchoring in that setting it as a priority in in our life and you know for those of us who are on the awakening path it is having a steady practice is reflective of the goal that we're seeking which is um you know steadiness of heart and mind on the path if our you know if our meditation practice is infrequent um it reflects a mind that is um turbulent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i really appreciate that in our conversation today how how looking at how we live our lives is so much a reflection of our consciousness i think that's such a great that's such a great message totally <laughs> and that's really the essence of kriya yoga you know that it's living that awakened consciousness you know in the world in in our life it's not separate mm-hmm. 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 But somehow we we want to set it up that way, but that's still the old operating system that yeah. says, okay, you know, we'll have spirituality over here, <laughs> and then we'll have the rest of the life that you know is is not um, in that container. But for the yogi, it's all one container. <laughs> that's right, <clears throat> and that container is God. <laughs> Beautiful. One of the things that we mentioned in the um, in the description for this episode was was how Kriya Yoga can transform our lives. This idea of transformation, and I think we've we've certainly touched on that in several in several ways in our um, in our conversation so far. Would you want to say anything else? Because when you first described like why does this question arise? That's one of the fears, right? Is um, you know, how do, how does somebody who's doing this how does that look? And we want to try it on. One of the fears that you mentioned is, oh, it's going to change us somehow. It's going to you know, it's going to um, make us maybe not be recognize ourselves as ourselves. So this idea of transformation, while it's mostly positive, it's also a little scary. Would you say more about that? Well, things, you know, we, we can, um, one of the key practices of Kriya Yoga is um, self-study, you know, contemplation. We begin to learn about the mind, nature of the mind, and where, you know, as we study, we learn more about like, well, where is the question coming from and where is the answer coming from? And so the the question about you know is is it going to be okay <laughs> to wake up spiritually is you know 
where is that coming from? You know, it's coming from the ego operating system. And, you know, once we begin to identify this, it loosens its grip a bit. You know, it doesn't, it's only transformed, you know, through the direct experience of super consciousness, you know, through, through actually knowing, yeah, that's, that's what I am and having a steady uh, experience of that. But we begin to, you know, sort of cut away at the power of that operating system by finding out, you know, where's the question coming from. So it's almost like a a metacogitation of, you know, what we're looking at this morning in terms of Arjuna's question, where's it coming from? You know, so we ask, you know, where is that fear of transformation coming from? It's coming from, you know, the, the, the ego. And also where's the promise coming from mm. of transformation? Mm. And that promise is coming from, you know, what we know at a soul level of our being is possible for us to live um, a life of freedom and joy and, um, you know, really unconditional um, happiness, you know, and the Gita gives many definitions of that, you know, to have in this very chapter, you know, yoga as freedom from sorrow. Mm-hmm. So we, we have that yearning and that is arising from the soul, you know, from our pure essence, because we already know that's possible for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's always amazing to me how fast our time together goes, but we've always almost come to the end. What words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about Bhagavad Gita today. So um, if, if you're inclined, of course, I recommend studying the Gita. And um, whether you're a new student or, you know, um, really familiar with the Gita, I... I have always found guidance and new, and I've been, you know, studying it for decades and I'm, you know, still a beginner and I'm, you know, I approach the Bhagavad Gita like a mother, you know, with an expectation that she's going to guide me. (laughs) And um, that's always the case. I'm always learning, you know, something new Mm -hmm. and, finding it relevant, you know, to where I am in my life right now. And we're living in a time that has been so unsettled, you know, with the problems that we face in our world today. And I think we all need um, guidance and inspiration. And it can be found uh, in the Gita. And there are so many um, helpful uh translations and commentaries of the gita and you know i showed my my torn uh, torn up copy um but you know my teacher has his last uh, commentary on the gita is the eternal way the inner meaning of the bhagavad gita uh which is his commentary in the light of kriya yoga by a direct disciple of paramatsu yogananda so you know, you can get this um, on Amazon. You can get it from directly from CSA, um, his headquarters. Um, so that would be my inspiration. Do it, study, dive in. Oh, lovely. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo. 
producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, who is the founder of the Yoga Hour and the spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Her website, again, is ellengraceobrien.com, and you can also check out csecenter.org, where you can find out more about Yogacharya O'Brien, about her many books, about the online courses that she offers. You can have links there to the, the um, podcast, the uh, Kriya Yoga uh, Today podcast um, that includes her prior Gita study lessons. So many great re resources there at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment website. Thank you so much, Yogacharya, again, for joining me today on the show. Um, thank you, Dr. Trujillo, and thank you for everyone who listens to um, the Yoga Hour and um, passes it on, um, like passing a light in our world. So thank you so much. I did want to mention about the daily meditation that it happens through that CSE website, csecenter.org, 6.30 in the morning Pacific, afternoon at 4 p.m. every day, and Monday evenings at 7.30. All those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang, which is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. You can uh, also check out a link on the CSE webpage, csecenter.org, for an upcoming silent meditation retreat, which will be March 30th to April 1st, 2023. This is an in-person retreat at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, again, in San Jose, California. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I am delighted that I will be joined by psychologist and author Rick Hansen to discuss his new book, Making Great Relationships. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe, and we love it when you do. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, our guest today, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>